Welcome to the America's Workforce Radio Podcast, the flagship production of the American Workers Radio and Podcast Network, where organized labor and its never-ending fight to protect the rights of the American worker come first. Now, presented by LIUNA, Laborers International Union of North America, here's your host, Ed Flash Ferrans. Nursing, the most honest and ethical profession. The results of a new Gallup poll. And today on the show, the Committee of Interns and Residents and the Brotherhood of Maintenance of Way Employees. Welcome to the February 26th edition of America's Workforce, where we are available on at least five platforms. That includes Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and Pandora. We have two guests on the show today, and our first guest comes from the state of California. That would be Dr. Phil Sossenheimer. And I mentioned California because we're getting a whole lot of downloads from California, so we do appreciate you listening to America's Workforce. A little background on Dr. Phil, as I call him. He is a hospice and palliative medicine fellow at Stanford Healthcare. He's also one of the key leaders, Stanford campaign, and he's going to get into some detail on this. And this is part of a union called CIR-SEIU. CIR stands for the Committee of Interns and Residents, which is the largest house staff union in the country right now, about 32,000 resident physicians and fellows like Dr. Phil. Now, here's the deal. In 2020, during his first year of residency at Stanford, he joined his colleagues in an impromptu protest after the administration omitted house staff from the initial rollout of the COVID vaccine. That fired everybody up, said, hey, look, we are on the front line here. We need the vaccine. So they staged this protest and bottom line, they got some results as a result of that protest and their unionization drive. They just worked out a 21% pay increase over three years after reaching their first contract with the health system. Now, this deal covers about 1,500 physicians, also includes paid ride shares, fertility benefits, and a new grievance process. You think any of that would happen without a union backing them? Well, I'll tell you, what's happened in Stanford is going around the country. This has spread to Massachusetts, Vermont, and other places in California, and also in Chicago. Almost 1,300 Chicago doctors have made history as the largest group of house staff in the Midwest to unionize with C-I-R-S-E-I-U. There was also some uh, job action in New York City, which we're going to talk about. The uh, frontline physicians held eight unity break events at some of the largest and most essential hospitals in New York City. So lots to talk about with Dr. Phil Sossenheimer as our first guest. And later in the show, we're going to check in with Reese Salter. Now, Reese is a vice president of the Southern Region of the Brotherhood of Maintenance of Way Employees, which is a very, very storied union. It goes back to 1887. It was founded on a hot July day in Demopolis, Alabama as a fraternal organization by John T. Wilson, who was a track foreman. And they've had their ups and downs once they had uh, 350,000 members. And now 
they're around 40 to 50,000 members. And in 2004, 20 years ago, the Brotherhood merged with the International Brotherhood of Teamsters, and that consolidated their strength. So uh, we'll talk about his journey, Reese, and this is part of our segment here on Black History Month. We're going to talk about his journey and how the union helped him exceed as a black person. So darn important. But uh, Reese Salter is his name, and he'll be joining us later in the show as our second guest. Now a brief look into the world of labor. This segment brought to you by the good folks at Boyd Watterson Asset Management, offering fixed income, real estate, and equity investment options to clients nationwide. Well, the nation's largest union of registered nurses, I'm talking about National Nurses United, is celebrating being named the Gallup Poll's most honest and ethical profession. And they've done this for 22 years in a row. Jean Ross is the president of NNU. She said nurses are incredibly honored that the sacred bond of trust we have with our patients has once again been uplifted in the Gallup poll. Our patients know we'll always be there to advocate for them, whether that means standing up to our employer's corporate greed and demanding safe patient care conditions in our workplaces or speaking up at the highest levels of power on issues that impact public health and safety. Year after year, nurses will always fight to ensure our patients come first. Well, this poll was conducted in January, and it turns out that 78% of U.S. adults said nurses have high or very high honesty and ethical standards. The image of many professions, especially those in the medical field, sharply improved in 2020 amid the COVID-19 pandemic. However, that effect was short-lived. A select few, led by nurses for the 22nd consecutive year, maintain overall positive ratings, according to the Gallup release. Nurses have taken the number one spot on the honesty and ethics list in all but one year since they were added in 1999. The exception? 2001, when firefighters were measured on a one-time basis shortly after the 9-11 terrorist attacks, and rightly so, I might add. By the way, National Nurses United is the largest and fastest-growing union of registered nurses in the country. All right, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, Dr. Phil Sossenheimer will be joining us to talk about the Committee of Interns and Residents. Back in a few minutes. This is America's Workforce. More shows available at awfradio.com. It takes Lyuna to build North America's infrastructure. From roads and bridges to schools and skyscrapers, the men and women of Lyuna, the Laborers International Union of North America, build the projects we depend on. From constructing the Freedom Tower on the site of the former World Trade Center to untangling Washington, D.C.'s congested interstate, Lyuna members do the work that matters. Find out what it takes to be built by Lyuna at lyuna.org. That's liuna.org. Hire union musicians. Call Music Talent of Cleveland at 216-881-1802. Call Music Talent of Cleveland as your dependable source for professional musicians in Northeast Ohio. Union musicians add harmony to weddings, elegance to parties, and uplifting music for all events. Music Talent of Cleveland contracts solo and ensemble musicians as well as bands and orchestras for single engagements. So hire union musicians. Call Music Talent of Cleveland today. 216-881-1802. America's Workforce is brought to you in part by the International Brotherhood of Teamsters, where you can find more at teamster.org. 
America's Workforce is sponsored in part by Boyd Watterson Asset Management, LLC. Find out more about our investment solutions tailored to meet the needs of Taft-Hartley funds at boydwatterson.com. The Ironworkers Great Lakes District Council, consisting of eight ironworker local unions in West Virginia, Pennsylvania, Ohio, and Michigan. We build the skylights and bridges along the Great Lakes. With more work than ever before, the Great Lakes District Council is actively searching out the next great ironworker. Whether it's building the next Intel plant or constructing a bridge to safely connect our great cities along the lake. So join the Ironworkers Great Lakes District Council today. Find out how and learn more about the council by visiting IWDistrictCouncil.com. America's Workforce is brought to you in part by the International Federation of Professional and Technical Engineers. You can find more at IFPTE.org. This segment of America's Workforce is brought to you by Survey and Ballot Systems. SBS has been providing unions with secure and flexible election options for over 30 years. Visit surveyandballotsystems.com to learn more. America's Workforce is brought to you in part by the United Auto Workers. Find more at uaw.org. Now, back to Ed Flash Ferrance with America's Workforce. And remember, you can check us out on Facebook or follow us on X, formerly known as Twitter. That would be AWF. Union Podcast. By the way, this next segment brought to you in part by the United Labor Agency, where you can find more at ulagency.org. Let's go to uh, line number one. Joining us from the West Coast today is Dr. Philip Sossenheimer. Dr. Phil, as I'm going to call him on the show for obvious reasons, is a hospice and palliative medicine fellow at Stanford Healthcare and one of the key leaders in the Stanford campaign, and he's a representative of the Committee of interns and residents, the largest house staff union in the U.S., and they're affiliated with the Service Employees International Union. In fact, the website is C-I-R-S-E-I-U.org. I hope you don't mind me calling you Dr. Phil. I had an opportunity to do that never before in my life, and today's that day. Is that okay? I'm so happy to make your dream come true. Thank you for having me. <laughs> All right. Let's talk about uh, the committee of interns and residents. I know you got a lot on your plate. You're doing a lot of good things and we appreciate what doctors and all people in healthcare do, because if you don't have your health, you ain't got nothing. I mean, that's basically it. So uh, talk to me about the organization. Let's start there if you don't mind. Absolutely. So, you know, the first thing I'll say is that I think this is long overdue. Um, We as physicians are following in the steps of our other colleagues in healthcare, you know, nurses, uh, environmental service workers, other frontline workers in healthcare who've been organized for a long time. And I think as physicians, we're just starting to catch up. But as you alluded to, we've had a great period of growth in our union, the Committee of Interns and Residents, which represents residents and fellows, or as we colloquially call them, the house staff. So these are physicians who are taking their first jobs out of medical school and are still in a period of training. Um, So they're not independently licensed to practice. And in the past 10 years or so, we've more than doubled our membership and are now representing, you know, over a third of all physicians in training across the country. So it's a really exciting time. And I think over the past 10 years, and especially since the pandemic, um, it's exposed a lot of what's wrong in healthcare, both for our patients and for people who are working in healthcare. And I think our hope is that we can make our workplace is a place that sustain us so that we can continue to sustain our patients. 
So it's been really, really exciting, and I'm happy to talk about some of the work that we've been doing. But big picture, um, I think this is long overdue, and we're happy to be doing the work. So, so all together, Dr. Phil, how, how long has this organization been together? Because I was reading, you mentioned the pandemic, and I, I know a lot of things changed there. But all together, when was uh, CIRSEIU, when was it actually formed? Yeah, so CIR was originally formed in the 50s and then only later became affiliated with SEIU. Um, it initially was predominantly based out of New York City, which is where it had started. And medicine, medical training in the period after medical school has changed a lot over time. But in the 50s, the working conditions for those docs was in many ways even worse than it is today with people working routinely over 100, 120 hours a week. And um, physicians in CIR began organizing both for improvements in their own working conditions, but also to advocate on behalf of their patients, um, particularly patients who were in safety net hospitals in the city. Um, and in recent decades, CIR has taken a more national presence. You know, I'm based out of California at Stanford, as mentioned, um, and CIR, our union, now represents all of the University of California hospitals, represents Stanford, and there's a lot more growth that's happening, which we'll talk about later. So I think there's been a few phases of growth within CIR's history, where it initially started as a more local group of shops in New York and now has spread to represent, like I said, you know, a third of um, residents and fellows across the country. Well, let's talk about that, that growth. But first, I want to get into uh, your first year of residency, which was in 2020. Mm-hmm. And that's when I know you joined some of your colleagues in a protest. I guess this happened kind of like an impromptu type of thing. Can you take That's me back right. to that time? What, what actually happened there and how effective was it? Sure. So this was right at the end of 2020 in December when you might recall the initial vaccinations were being rolled out for COVID. And Stanford had allocated its initial wave of COVID vaccines in a manner that excluded almost all of the residents and fellows from getting the initial vaccine. Um, I think maybe five to seven of the 1,500 physicians who, um, you know, were working, many of them on the front lines of the pandemic, in the emergency room, putting breathing tubes in patients who had COVID, literally saving lives, um, were not included in the first wave of vaccinations. And so, understandably, I think people were really upset um, having physically put their safety at risk for this large institution only to be sort of sidelined when it came to getting the protections that we needed. And a group of folks organized a walkout um, over lunch, so not a work stoppage, more like a unity break concept. And it was very well attended. Um, We had great press coverage. And within a day, Stanford had reversed course and offered the vaccine to the residents and fellows. And I think that taught us two things. The first is that whether this was an intentional exclusion or not, and I think Stanford's position is that it was an oversight, which is fair, but it taught us that there's not necessarily people at the decision-making level who are thinking about the residents and fellows. And Mm -hmm. to not think about the residents and fellows who are the folks who are delivering care in the most direct fashion. You know, these are the physicians who are going in the room first, who are seeing the patients. They're the ones who are in overnight. And to not understand that those are the people who need to be vaccinated alongside the nurses, alongside the environmental services workers, alongside other frontline folks, it just shows that the decision-making process is divorced from what's happening on the ground. And that if we want to advocate for ourselves and for our patients, we need to have a voice. And the second thing that it taught us is that collective action is actually an extremely effective way of getting your voice and communicating it to leadership. 
Um, unfortunately, you know, in previous years, we've had attempts to go within internal systems that they built for self-advocacy through, you know, graduate medical education committees, and nothing really ever got done. And within a day of walking out, not even stopping work, just walking out and making some noise, they had changed course. And so that made us realize the power that we had and the change that we could affect if we worked together. And so from there, we organized our union affiliated with CIR and won our first contract this past uh, winter. Well, congratulations on that. And I was reading earlier about that contract. Uh, Pretty decent here, a 21% pay increase over three years after reaching your first contract with them. That's that's pretty impressive. Now, if you don't mind, uh, nothing comes easy. I know that. I've talked to a lot of people on this show, Dr. Phil, and uh, and I wonder if you could just kind of reference what you had to go through. I mean, obviously, you got their attention on the vaccine part, and then this came a couple of years later. But how difficult was it for you? It was very difficult, and it was difficult on multiple fronts. You know, I think the thing that everybody expects is union busting from the employer. Stanford hired a notoriously anti-labor firm, Jones Day, to represent them, ruled out a lot of the typical union busting tactics, tried to spread fear and disinformation among my, our colleagues and among, you know, their supervisors, the attending level physicians. Um, so it was a pretty chilled environment for a couple of years, I have to say. We were not welcomed with warm arms, unsurprisingly. I think the part that I found even more challenging, honestly, is actually the culture change of having a workforce that has historically not considered itself to maybe be a laboring group, you know, not be part of the working class in a traditional sense for many Mm -hmm. reasons. Um, But to have folks as physicians realize that, yes, you are, you know, you're, you're selling your labor for money. You are in difficult working conditions. You are having profit extracted from you. And, um, you know, that class consciousness change, I think, was really difficult. And there's a lot of reasons for that, um, I think. But I also think this is one of the most important parts of the work that we're doing is, you know, physicians have an immense amount of social and political and cultural capital. And historically, I think they've been a fairly conservative group of people. Um, But medicine is in a different place now. You know, physicians aren't Mm -hmm. owners of private practices. They are employees of corporations. The largest employer of physicians now is an insurance company, United Healthcare. Right. And my worry is that the class consciousness of physicians has not caught up to the reality of the situation because physicians have historically earned high salaries and done fairly well for themselves. But we are in a position now where we're not we don't have the agency to make decisions about what happens in the hospital. Right. Those decisions are being made at the C-suite by MBAs. And so if we don't organize as a group and we don't realize where we are within the corporate hierarchy, my worry is that our patient care will suffer, right? And the trend yeah. that we're seeing of a two-tiered healthcare system coming out with one quality and level of care for the rich and another for the poor, that's going to continue to worsen. And having a group of physicians that are organized, that recognize this problem, that see themselves as active agents of change who could stand together as workers and say, this is not okay. You know, we need to be able to take care of our patients in safe conditions where we have enough time to spend with them, where our censuses are such that we can take care of them. You know, for me, that is the ultimate goal. And that's been the hardest part is convincing people to sort of open their eyes and realize not only that the system is broken, which I think is one step that people can take, but that you actually have power to change it. And so this is one step, you know, our contract was a great win. For me, I think as the person who was organizing it, it's never enough, you know, a lot of the things that we hoped that would actually structurally change things within the hospital, um, 
we weren't able to achieve. It's a lot easier for a rich organization like Stanford to throw money at a problem and make it go away. And that's important because people are struggling, especially in the Bay where it's so expensive to live. You know, I was talking to house staff who aren't able to, you know, are barely able to afford rent. Some people have to live in their vans on their neighbor's property. One person that I talked to, right? So money absolutely Mm -hmm. matters. But what matters even more to me is activating a group of people to organize around um, the bigger issues in healthcare. And I think that we're starting to see that. Um, but that type of consciousness change takes time. And the, the thing what you, you mentioned about the, the care for the patients, too, and I don't know, you mentioned the, the, the large corporations here that have taken over healthcare, and it's so sad. And that's happened in just about every industry in America today. And it, it, that's Wall Street talking and Wall Street cutting back. But the bottom line is, and I know you can answer this, the bottom line, you want the best for your patients. And because of the structure of what's happened to healthcare today, that is very, very difficult for you to deliver that, that wonderful patient care that patients want and deserve. Isn't that true? That's absolutely right. That's absolutely right. Nobody goes into medicine and works this much without a real desire to help patients. And here's the thing is I think our profession needs to own our history. You know, the American Medical Association lobbied against Medicare for all and national payer health insurance throughout the 20th century. And my hope is that this is a chance now. We have a movement of young physicians who are energized, who recognize the need for a true safety net in this country. And this is an opportunity for us to organize for better working conditions for ourselves, yes, but even more importantly, for working conditions and structural change that will help our patients. Dr. Philip Sossenheimer joining us on our live line today. Once again, he's a hospice and palliative medicine fellow at Stanford University Healthcare. He's also one of the key leaders in the Stanford campaign, which we talked about on the show, and he's part of the Committee of Interns and Residents, the largest house staff union in the United States, and they're affiliated with the Service Employees International Union. The website, do go to this website and check them out. C-I-R-S-E-I-U dot O-R-G. Lots more to come, more organizing going on. The battle continues. We'll talk about that next right here on America's Workforce. You're listening to America's Workforce with Ed Flash Ferens. It takes Lyuna to power North America with affordable energy. The men and women of Lyuna, the Laborers International Union of North America, have the skills needed to build and maintain oil, natural gas, nuclear, solar, and wind projects that are shaping America's energy future. From new energy tech to retrofitted facilities, Lyuna members do it all. Find out what it takes to be powered by Lyuna at Lyuna.org. That's L-I-U-N-A. America's Workforce is brought to you in part by the Ironworkers. You can find more at ironworkers.org. America's Workforce Radio is sponsored in part by the International Union of Painters and Allied Trades, District Council 6, representing painters, glazers, drywall finishers, and sign and display industry workers. They remind you that belonging to a union is your right as an American. Are you an experienced mechanical insulator looking to take your career to the next level? Insulators Local 50 in Central Ohio has steady work for a number of years. Insulators Local 50 offers a total wage and benefits package that can't be beat. It's not just the competitive wages. Local 50 also provides medical, vision, and dental insurance with no paycheck deductions for you and your family. Don't miss out on the chance to secure your future. 
Join us at Insulators Local 50. Earn great pay and the best benefits. Visit insulators50.com forward slash AWF50 to fill out the online form and a local 50 representative will call to begin the process. America's Workforce is brought to you in part by the United Steelworkers. You can find more at usw.org. A great union requires a reliable election system. Survey and Ballot Systems is a trusted election partner with more than 30 years of expertise in managing union elections. By partnering with SBS, your union can ensure it gets an auditable process and a high level of customer service. SBS is here to help you conduct your union vote securely, transparently, and with trust building always in mind. Visit SurveyAndBalladSystems.com to learn more. America's Workforce is brought to you in part by the Heat and Frost Insulators Labor Management Cooperative Trust. Find out more at insulators.org forward slash LMCT. America's Workforce is presented by the Labor's International Union of North America. Feel the power right now at liuna.org. Now, back to America's Workforce. Here's Ed Flash Ferens. And remember, you can check us out on at least five platforms. That includes Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and Pandora. And when you get an opportunity, here's what you do. Just sign up and receive our shows on a regular basis and give us a rating. We always appreciate those five-star ratings, so please keep them coming. And remember this, if you like a show, please share that show. I mean, I like all the shows I do. Some are better than others. And today we have a really good guest joining us from California, which is one state that is getting a whole lot of traction with America's workforce. We uh, did some analytics last year in California and New York, big states for America's workforce. And our guest today is Dr. Phil Sossenheimer, who's with Stanford. We're talking about health care, and he's a representative of the Committee of Interns and Residents, the largest house staff union in the United States, and the last I saw on the website is 32,000 resident physicians and fellows across the country. Now, we're talking about Stanford. Congratulations on that contract. 21% pay increase over three years, and this was the first biggie since the pandemic. And the pandemic, I've said this on the show, had changed everything, especially in healthcare. But obviously, because of what you were able to accomplish at Stanford, it seems to be snowballing. I see... Uh, Residents, the interns and residents have unionized in Massachusetts, Vermont, and elsewhere around the country. Take me to uh, Northwestern University, and I'm reading, I guess, uh, 84% of the participants casting ballots in favor of representation. This thing is is working in, in the right direction here. Talk to me about what's happening over there. Yeah, that's exactly right. I think right now we're seeing a landslide um, among large academic, these name brand institutions that dominate a lot of the culture and the um, sort of research and policy output across the country within medicine. So these are big names that I think are really valuable places for us to start organizing. You know, taking Northwestern as an example, they just won their contract, like you said, 794, or sorry, they won their union. Uh, 794 yes votes to only 148 no votes, which is a huge landslide and so incredible to see. And Northwestern as a brand, is this is the type of place that attracts the top caliber of medical student, the top caliber of physician. And as we think about, these are the type of people who are now going to be getting an education, a political education in what labor organizing looks like. And the future leaders who will be coming from places like Northwestern, from places like Stanford, leaders in medicine will now know, you know, they'll have organizing experience. 
they'll have some sense of what the labor landscape is like politically and within our corporate medicine world um, in the U.S. And I think that's a huge, huge opportunity for us to um, make some changes and teach future leaders, future physician leaders about what labor advocacy looks like. So I'm really excited about this wave and just thrilled for my colleagues at Northwestern, at Mass General and Brigham, which are affiliated with Harvard, at University of Pennsylvania. Um, I think this is starting to make waves within medicine. Our top journal, the New England Journal, has started to have a series on resident unionization. And although they're maybe not the most in favor of it, the fact that folks at the highest tiers of medicine are starting to talk about labor unions is a huge victory in my view. This is changing oh, yeah. the conversation. And my hope is that that trickles down and helps our patients and our health system as a, as a whole. And that's exactly what we want to do. We want to change that conversation. And we also have to educate the public on the money aspect. And I was reading, according to a 2022 report, Northwestern Medicine received $283 million more in tax exemptions than it spent on charity care and community investment. So they're getting a lot of money. I mean, we're talking tax exemptions here, but it doesn't seem to be trickling down to to you. And then obviously you want to take care of your patients. You have to be compensated. Now, when this report came out, this sounds like a game changer. Are we going to see more of this, this, this exposure of what's going on in, in corporate healthcare today? That's my hope. And, you know, just speaking from my own experience at Stanford, it's a similar story. Their net profits in 2023 at Stanford were $780 million and $395 million in 2022. That's profits after expenses. So these large academic medical centers are raking in the cash and they're nonprofits. But, you know, at my hospital at Stanford, I wasn't able to see public insurance patients, medical patients in my primary care clinic, despite this immense amount of profit that these hospitals are making. So I think there's a huge problem there. To me, that's completely unethical. Um, and my hope is that, you know, this organizing, it's just one part. But I do think that as physicians, we have a lot of cultural and social political capital. And that if we started to use our voice to speak up against these inequities, it could make a big difference. And the other thing is that, you know, Stanford, Northwestern, they're not doing enough, obviously, for their communities. But they get a lot of the attention. When Stanford, when Northwestern organizes, people pay attention. And I just want to point out that a lot of this work has been done in the public safety and our, you know, public safety net hospitals for a lot longer than it's been done at private academic medical centers. And we're just catching up, you know, the New York um, health system, our committee of interns and residents in the New York health system, the public safety net hospital there. um, They recently went on a series of unity breaks to advocate for better pay for public safety net physicians because otherwise people aren't going to work in those areas. And so this is something that we have to work together across the large corporate, you know, the private academic or the academic medical centers and the public safety net hospitals. We all have to have the same goal in mind, which is the best care, not just for the patients who can afford to pay, who can afford to come to Stanford, but the best care for everybody. In uh, New York, you're mentioning what what was going on there. The, uh, The physicians there have not received a raise since March of 2020. And I know you've been targeting the mayor there, the mayor of New York City, Eric Adams. Has he responded to all of this? I mean, you're, you're very vocal in New York, and that's kind of the media capital. What, what was the result out of that? 
You know, I have not heard of a response yet, um, so I don't know. That might maybe there's been something since I was last updated on the situation, but I have not yet heard that they've had a response. Okay, all right. But the bottom line is, you're being very vocal on this thing. Can I ask you what your what your next next target is going to be here? Because it's important, you know. Once you get the train moving here, you want to keep it rolling in the right direction. Okay, are, are we are we planning to do that? Absolutely. There's some really, really big contracts coming up within medicine. Um, you know, I mentioned both Mass General and Brigham, um, who are now under one institution. Those are the Harvard-affiliated hospitals, and that's sort of the crown jewel of the academic medical centers. And they were successful in organizing their union, and they're bargaining their contract right now. So that's a huge one to keep an eye out for. University of Pennsylvania is one to keep an eye out for. Um, and then there's a lot more in the works that I don't, uh, you know, don't want to expose right now, but I think you'll be seeing us in the news a lot over the coming months to years. Let me ask you this, and we're speaking with Dr. Phil Sossenheimer, and uh, he is affiliated with the Committee of Interns and Residents, and they are part of SEIU, giant union, almost 2 million members across the country, C-I-R-S-E-I-U.org is a website, and they got about 30,000 plus members from coast to coast. Um, Doctors, you, you mentioned this in the first segment. You know, doctors have been kind of quiet on this. And, and doctors, for the most part, okay, you, may, you, you go to school for a long time. You got a, lot of, uh, you got a lot of debt, obviously. And then eventually down the road, you're making a lot of money. But much of that is in private practice. And you indicated a lot of those uh, mom and pop practices have been gobbled up by giant corporations. Is that part of what these doctors are speaking out on because they don't have that, they, that these practices are gone? I don't know how many have disappeared here, but um, I'm just wondering, the whole landscape has changed dramatically. I mean, you know that. I know you're young in this profession right now, but what what used to be ain't anymore, <laughs> if you follow me Absolutely. on this. Yeah, we've seen a huge change in the landscape of medicine, just like you alluded to. You know, it used to be that physicians would go into their own private practice. They were their own boss. They saw their own patients. And that system had flaws. You know, patients back in the day, the lack of insurance was even worse than it is now. So it's not to say that that system was at all perfect. And I think as a, as a profession, we have a lot to own up to in terms of our own advocacy against, like I mentioned in the last segment, single-payer health care. Um, so we, you know, we don't have the best track record necessarily, but I think physicians are realizing that they're in a different place. Now, a majority of physicians are now employees of hospitals or other corporate entities. The number one employer of physicians in the country is United healthcare, which is an insurance agency. Um, Mm -hmm. so physicians are finding themselves in a different part of the equation now when it comes to, you know, the balance sheet, they are an expense. And, um, anytime that, you know, they can be squeezed for that little extra drop of profit, see one more patient you know, cut down your patient visit a little bit, the corporation is incentivized to take that. And that's not just something that makes our working conditions less comfortable for us. It's something that directly hurts our patients. You know, whenever I talk to patients, people feel so, you know, hurt by the current hospital system. You come in, you see your doctor for five minutes, you feel like they don't care about you. And part of that is because folks don't have the time. They're seeing 24, 26 patients in a day, right? These are unsustainable levels that aren't delivering good care and they're not making our patients, you know, they're not delivering good healthcare or emotional care to our patients. It's not a place that anybody wants to be. Um, And so absolutely there's been a huge change in healthcare and I think physicians are starting to wake up to it. One thing that I want to comment on is just the, um, you know, 
talking about the psychology of physicians historically. And, you know, like you mentioned, people work so many years, they put their heads down, they have to spend three to seven years working in their residency, um, 80 hours a week, one day off per week. And the mantra has always been historically that if you can't make it, if you can't get through, that's on you. This is not a structural problem. This is a problem with you not being good enough, not working hard enough, not caring enough. And so when a physician comes out of training, that's the psychology that they've been in for that many years. So it's no surprise mm -hmm. that they have a pick yourself up by the bootstraps mentality. It's no surprise that we've historically organized against things like single payer, right? That physicians are historically a more conservative group. And my hope is that physicians are starting to wake up and that through labor organizing, through recognizing the structures that we find ourselves in and the way that they impact us, my hope is that that will build more empathy among physicians for other people who have it even more difficult. You know, physicians, yeah, we work hard, but like you said, most of us still command good salaries. We're going to be okay. And there are working class folks out there who are working more than we are and are going to be struggling even more than we will. And so if we can have some class allyship with them and recognize that labor policies, labor advocacy, politicians who benefit those folks will also benefit us, that we're all on the same team. I think that that could be really game changing for the future, not just of medicine, but also for our society as a whole. Well, I thank you for coming to the show today. This is the right show for you, I tell you. And I want you to keep in touch with us because healthcare. It's so important that uh, our listening audience understands what's going on in our healthcare system. And I know National Nurses United, they're a big proponent of Medicare for all. A lot of unions are. And uh, those in the profession, you could see that there's a sea change going on right now. And I heard it in this conversation. So let's keep the dialogue going. You got our full support here on America's Workforce. Once again, the website is C-I-R-S-E-I-U. Dot org, the Committee of Interns and Residents, the largest house staff union in the United States when it comes to health care. Dr. Phil Sossenheimer, you take care. Thank you so much for joining us today. Hey, thank you for having me. All right, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, Reese Salter will be joining us on behalf of the Brotherhood of Maintenance of Way Employees. This is America's Workforce. It takes Lyuna to keep America running. Over 70,000 public employees are part of Lyuna, the Laborers International Union of North America, delivering critical services such as healthcare and emergency response, as well as maintaining roads and sanitation systems. Even the National Postal Mail Handlers Union, representing over 47,000 U.S. postal workers, is affiliated with Lyuna. Find out what it takes for Lyuna to keep America running at lyuna.org. That's L-I-U-N-A dot org. The Heat and Frost Insulators and Allied Workers are proud to be a title sponsor for America's Workforce Radio. The Insulators Union is leading the way in the mechanical insulation industry, fire stopping, and infectious disease control. Regarded as North America's energy conservation specialist, these professionals are known for their professional work and dedication. You can learn more about the Insulators Union at insulators.org. This portion of the show brought to you by the International Union of Bricklayers and Allied Craftworkers. For more information, please visit BACWeb.org. There is unity and strength for workers. We are the USW. We are the USW. The United, United Steelworkers. Steel the largest industrial union in North America. We represent 850,000 members in, in the, the U.S., US Canada, Canada, and, and the, the Caribbean. Caribbean. We work in metals, rubber, chemicals, paper, 
oil refining, atomic energy, and the service sector. We are steel workers, standing strong and fighting for what's right. The Alliance for American Manufacturing is a nonprofit, nonpartisan partnership formed back in 2007 by some of America's leading manufacturers and the United Steelworkers. Their mission is simple strengthen American manufacturing and create new private sector jobs through smart public policies. Key word there is smart. We need to be smarter than ever in today's highly competitive world. The Alliance for American Manufacturing believes that an innovative and growing manufacturing base is vital to America's economic and national security, as well as providing good jobs for future generations. Good jobs today, good jobs tomorrow. Good American jobs. Find out more at AmericanManufacturing.org. America's Workforce is brought to you in part by the Communication Workers of America. You can find more at cwa-union.org. Now, back to Ed Flash Ferrens with America's Workforce. And remember, you can check us out on Facebook or follow us on X, formerly known as Twitter. That would be AWF Union Podcast. By the way, this next segment brought to you in part by the Ohio Federation of Teachers. You can find more at oh.aft.org. Let's go to Georgia right now. And joining us on line number two is Reese Salter. This is our uh, segment that we showcase members of the Transportation Trades Department of the AFL-CIO. TTT.org is a website. And Reese is a vice president of the Southern Region of the Brotherhood of Maintenance of Way Employees, better known as the Railroad Union. Well, one of several railroad unions. Reese Salter, welcome to America's Workforce. How are we doing today, my brother? I'm doing great. I'm glad to be on with you this, this, this afternoon. So thank you for having me. Well, I tell you, you got a powerful group there with the Transportation Trades Department, and also the Brotherhood is linked up to the International Brotherhood of Teamsters. So there's a lot of solidarity there, a lot of employees, and a lot to talk about on the show. Now, a little background on you, and also you, you know that we're uh, commemorating Black History Month. And I, I want to get a little background on yourself. It's important to showcase the journey that so many have made and the trials and tribulations to get from point A to point B. And uh, before we get into the brotherhood, talk to me about growing up, Reese. I, I know you have an interesting story, so it's all yours, brother. Well, I grew up in Savannah, Georgia. I am a son of a longshoreman. Uh, my dad is a, a, a out of local um, International Longshoreman Association, fourteen fourteen in Savannah, Georgia. He's a fifty five year employee. He's still working at seventy four years old, and he loves it so much. He does not. He loves the union and everything about it. He does not want to um, turn it over to the young young folk quite yet. But um, and my grandfather, um, he was a former railroader for the Southern Seaboard Railroad down in Savannah, Georgia. So I come from a long line of union background. Um, I remember when I was younger, my dad, went when they had one of their um, work stoppages, um, I was out there on the picket line with him and doing some, um, just getting my first taste of getting out there rallying with, with the men and women in Savannah, Georgia, as they were fighting for a good contract on the on the waterfront. But myself, um, just a little bit about myself, I am, I uh, um I graduated from Georgia State in 1999 with a with a bachelor's of science in social work. Um, I never worked a day in social work, but I used my degree every day. <laughs> I like to say, um, but just coming out of high school, um, trying to find my way, I was I, I worked with my dad on the waterfront for a little while 
before I went off to school and graduated from Georgia State. But during my time when I was when work was slow on the waterfront, I tried to gain um, gain employment down on the um, it on the waterfront. But it was a local mom and pop industry industry business that I, I applied for, and I I did the interview I did the interview, and I, I felt I did real well. Um, me and the um, owner connected very well. His son was a sophomore at the high school I just graduated from. And, you know, he, he shared with me that he, I, he felt like I was a good candidate and that I could get the job. And he said, I, I would just hate to hire you and have to fire you in two years because I'm just looking for someone to hold a position for my son for two years. And I, I, he had no doubt that I would have the, uh, the position for, you know, would do a good job. But he said, I, 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 he told me he wasn't going to be able to hire me. So I was a little frustrated, a little bewildered at, at, by, by his um, conversation with me. So I went home and told my dad about it. He said, well, son, you just got a good taste of what right to work looked like. He said, <laughs> you know, you, <laughs> you didn't get opportunity. But he said, you know, if you find the opportunity to get a good union job, there's protections in the labor and you make sure you insulate yourself and you find people that's in working in the right direction. And, and if you get in the area and ever in the situation, if you get opportunity to work with a union, make sure you find one that's strong and, uh, and that understands solidarity and what brotherhood and sisterhood looks like. And I landed on my feet um, back in 2008. I um, applied for CSX Railroad and I'm proud to say I never missed a union meeting, even though I wasn't eligible to run for a position in my lodge until I had um, 24 months of it, of service, of good good service, and I never looked back. Once I my first position with my lodge is the position I hold now, and that's secretary of treasury. And I've been the secretary of treasury of lodge 65 right here in Atlanta, Georgia, for my local um, for now going on 14 14 years. So I've been. Um, and then before I worked my way up and just kind of was, I was a foreman on the tracks. Um, I excelled in being a foreman and just kind of um, leading others and looking out for the, the members that worked under me, worked with me, not under me, but worked with me on the day-to-day on the railroad tracks. And we, we just came to bond. And so it just was a natural transition when I became, I started out um, as an organizer back in 2017, just as a frontline organizer, just trying to bring connections with the brothers and sisters on the track and trying to merge that that um, disconnect from our national division, which I'm a national division officer. So I, I travel all across the country talking to members, trying to understand what their needs were and just better connect and communicate those needs back to the to our then um, leadership at the time, um, president and secretary treasurer, and, and told them exactly what the members were looking for from their leaders. And so that experience led me to being a vice chairman for the Allied Federation, where I, I, I served on the Allied Federation, where in that role as a vice chairman, I represented the same members um, against the carriers as far as fighting for their rights and making sure if they got wrongly, wrongfully disciplined, I advocated for them and just kind of took care of the day-to-day needs. Um, sadly, um, during COVID, I had to attend a few funerals, and we lost some members due to um, just, you know, the COVID pandemic, and that was just a sad time and transition, but that's still a part of being your brother's keepers, and a lot of those widows I still talk to and check on from time to time, just making sure they're still hanging in there and doing the best they can without their, their breadwinner. So that's part of, of what we do as a union is look out for the women and children that are left behind by members that have, by some of our fallen members. And then um, I actually, in back in 2022, 
um, it was an opportunity for me to run for this national position. And I was, I ran for this position as um, vice president of the South region and I ran unopposed. And that was, that was um, very um, humbling by the membership to say that they really wanted me to represent them in the South. And, and actually I made history on when I was elected back in Las Vegas in July of 2022, where I became first African American um, member to be a, to hold up this higher position in our brotherhood. So I, it was very exciting. So it's been very fast-paced and since 2022. We had a lot of things going on in the country as far as um, a possible rail strike that was averted because of a, a Biden um, presidential PEB emergency board um, back in um, in December where um, when we, we had a few issues that went unresolved that we were still trying to hold out for our members and that we were willing to um, – stand up and fight for it to make sure our members got the best quality of life and the best things that's possible for us to be moving forward. And one of those key factors was paid sick leave. And mm-hmm. so we, we had, was able to get a, get a paid sick leave vote in the House of Representatives that passed the House of Representatives, but it failed on the Senate floor by several votes. And it was actually, we, get, we got support from both Republicans and Democrats but we didn't have enough support to pass the measures to gain paid sick leave on a national level for all our members. And, but since then we've just been fighting, um, fighting to make the everyday for our members to make quality of life better for them and just really moving forward, moving this brotherhood forward to um, impact the lives of our members every day. Um, we've gained paid sick leave on several class one railroads. Um, to date we have a paid sick leave agreement on CSX. Norfolk Southern, Union Pacific, um, BNSF is in the works. We just recently passed one on the Canadian National um, Railroad. As of just as of earlier this week, we gained paid sick leave for our members, and basically we're getting forty hours of paid sick leave for members that in this industry. A lot of pe- a lot of people didn't understand that uh, uh, railroad the railroad tracks are outside, and our members are working outside in in every weather. Rain, sleet, snow, or shine. Railroad, our railroad workers across this country out there in the elements, and we get sick also. I mean, I know John Henry was a bad man one time, but he <laughs> he even fell sick at times. So we really, as railroad workers, we we uh, and I, we have family members that also rely on us, and that that all sometimes get sick. So get paid sick leave is a, is an issue that we really took up and took the fight to the carriers, and we we was able to gain paid sick leave for, for members, and we're still in the fight now to gain paid sick leave for all railroad workers that we represent, but we're, we're actually getting, gaining paid sick leave for workers across the country because, as as you know, as it's a rising tide lifts all boats. So as one group gets it, uh, you know, it brings exposure and light to what all the workers in this, in this um, United States, in this country need. You know, Reese, we followed that story about the paid sick leave or lack thereof. And what's crazy about it, okay, not only did you not have paid sick leave, when you took time off because you were sick, you were docked for it. That's the crazy part about this story. It's just, but it's good to see, and I say this on the show, that the needle's moving in the right direction. So we just got to keep it moving in the right direction. Reese, I have a question for you, though. And, and yes. I appreciate you coming on the show to tell us your journey and how you started and how you got involved in the union. And I often say this on the show too, the union difference. Let me, let me ask you this. If it wasn't for the union, do you think you'd be where you are today as a vice president 
of the South region of the Brotherhood of Maintenance of Way employees? No way. Um, and my and the testament to that is my my children. I have five daughters, and I have two daughters that's now this is um, already want to get into the railroad industry because they see the union benefit. They see the growth. They they see the the jobs that they they father had before the railroad, and they see the lifestyle and what we're able to achieve. And they see the fight. They I mean we we've been on we went down to Grady Hospital to fight for. Um, Medicare for all, and they see the and they they've been out there on paid sick leave down for us when we had members um, at rallies for paid sick leave. So my kids are really seeing the union benefit of just being able to help each help others in times of need. So they they really getting excited. So they the union benefit for me and my family has I would never if it wasn't for the union I wouldn't be. And I actually seen the benefit growing up being and seeing my father. So it should have took. I should have been in the union sooner when Norfolk Southern came calling back in 1999. But that's that's another story for another day. Okay, it's, it's never too late. <laughs> never too late, my man. What a great story! Thank you for uh, for sharing your background. And uh, we, we want to make sure so many people realize what unions do for people, what they do for families, and what they've done for generations. It's so important. So thank you, thank you, thank you for coming to the show. And. Uh, did you say five daughters? Did I hear that correctly? Five, five daughters. So I know how to swing a hammer very well. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I have four daughters, so I <laughs> I feel your pain. I feel your pain. <laughs> <laughs> they, they, daddy keep, they keep daddy working. and I. <laughs> oh, yes, they do. Yes, they do, even when they're grown up. All right, Reese, thank you so much for, uh, for joining us here on America's Workforce. And I do... Uh, I do thank you for bringing up that uh, Medicare for All. I did see that YouTube video, and if you just Google Reese Salter, it'll take you right there. And if you have a problem, just contact BMA. We'll get you there. <laughs> okay, <laughs> bmwe.org is the website for the Brotherhood of Maintenance Way employees. Also a proud sponsor, one of many here at America's Workforce. You take care, stay safe, and stay strong, okay? Thank you. Same to you, brother. And that'll be it for another edition of America's Workforce. Coming up tomorrow the National Education Association, and how to improve your heart health through technology. Until then, all of you have a safe and wonderful day. That concludes another episode of the America's Workforce Radio Podcast. Thanks for listening, and be sure to subscribe so you never miss a show. America's Workforce is a production of Labor Tools and BMA Media Group. Find out more information online at labortools.com.